Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So we have today another founder from Startup Nation. I mean, it's amazing the founders coming out of Israel, but uh, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit because this founder, you know, has seen it all, has seen, you know, the goods and the bads also on the market. So I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit from that. A lot of adrenaline-filled stories, which I know that you all like. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alon Block. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Good to see you. So originally born in, in Israel. So, you know, give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How were your upbringings, you know, growing up there? Well, Israel was a, uh, I grew up in the 70s. So Israel was a very different place. It was a mission driven place. There were wars. There was, by the way, hyperinflation. I remember as a kid, there were two currency changes. The economy was always from one recession to, uh, to another. Israel wasn't poor, but it wasn't wealthy like it is today. And people were very mission-driven. They cared about the country. Uh, they cared about uh, the society. Uh, they were trying to... It was, it was truly a startup country. Israel was created in 1948. So, so in your case, why? Because obviously you did your military, the combat division there, and then you did your undergrad. But then you, you landed in the U.S. So why coming here to the U.S. for the MBA? What triggered that? Uh, I didn't really have a plan. I studied... Uh, biology, really biochemistry and genetics, and um, decided I want, didn't want to be a researcher and work in the lab. I, I felt like I wanted to see the world. And I was curious about business. I didn't know what it really meant. But, you know, coming from a small country in the 90s, coming to the U.S., to New York was, was, uh, was kind of a big change. I didn't have a plan. I just knew what I was interested in and what I liked. And I hope somehow these things would, would you know, uh, fit in together. So came in by chance and ended up spending probably 18 out of the last 25 years here. But I also went back twice to Israel. I lived in London for three years. So I, I'm moving around. Moving around and then also, you know, different things that you've done. You know, everything started for you in the consulting, you know, side of things. So I guess, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the things that I typically see on, on really successful entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that, you know, have done the full cycle, you know, and have done it well, is that they have the consulting background. You know, many of them have been in BCG, McKinsey. So what, what would you say that, that 
gave you, you know, that McKinsey gave you to really, you know, think and approach problems? Look, I think it's a continuum because I don't know if I'll do an MBA today, um, just to be clear. But I did come from a small place and didn't have a lot of business experience. And Columbia gave me the opportunity. And from there, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to a particular industry. And I went to McKinsey at the time in the 90s. It was a very sought after place. And so a lot of people wanted to go there. I think it was just two things. One is being surrounded by smart, ambitious people. And the other thing is just the ability as a, as a young guy, I was in my 20s, to see to see how CEOs and executives think, you know, in Fortune 500 companies. So it was interesting for me to see. But I also knew fairly quickly that that was not wanted. I, what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to control my destiny to be a principal owner of things. So, but, you know, clearly it helps you uh, get exposure to decision-making and judgment, um, understand how to communicate, you know, th those kind of things. So I think it was good for me to do for a couple of years, and that was the right amount for me as well. So not only on the consulting side, you know, you were able to really think about problem solving, but then also you were able to look at it too from the investor side, right? Because, I mean, you, you were on the other side of the table for about six years on JVP, uh, where you had the, um, you guys had this $400 million fund to invest in early stage companies. You know, I'm sure that that gave you access to really see what separated the good performers from the bad performers on the fund and perhaps pattern recognition. So. What were you able to identify there from the things that worked, from the things that did not work in entrepreneurship? So first of all, I think the cycle really matters. And when you're a young guy, you haven't seen cycles, or maybe you not, don't realize what a cycle is. And I told you, kind of growing up in Israel, recessions, wars, uh, new currencies, inflation, you know, th those are things that um, you, you kind of learn the hard way that, you know, the economy is not necessarily stable. When I joined JVP, I joined in April 2000. And for those who know, you know, the stock market peaked, I think, in March 2000, NASDAQ and, 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 the, and the craziness around it, and then started going down gradually and then much faster into late 2000 and into 2001. And I think that was a very humbling experience because it doesn't matter what you did, things moved from amazing to whatever you did wasn't good enough. So a month after I joined, my venture firm was a major shareholder in a company called Chromatis that was sold to Lucent for $5 million. Um, that was about 2% of, of Lucent shares. Um, and I, you know, all of a sudden I have Carrie in this, in this company that I wasn't part of putting together the deal. I'm this junior guy, you know, I'm gonna be super successful here. And all of a sudden, the world changes dramatically. All of a sudden, you know, the price of the stock of Lucent went down 75%, but also all these different assets. And so we were lucky to raise a fund. I think it was $450 million um, and uh, start investing. And so it was interesting. On the one hand, it doesn't matter what you did, nothing kind of worked. There were no IPOs. There were very few M&As, and the prices of deals were much lower. So 2001, 2002, 2003, everybody was still shell-shocked. If you remember, B2B was back to banking and B2C back to consulting. Like, there was a huge migration out of tech. And even 2004, 5, 6, the markets were very subdued for, for technology. There wasn't a lot of investment, certainly not in consumer stuff. 
It was kind of more, more on the B2B side. So it doesn't matter what you did. You felt like you were pedaling as fast as you could. You, 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 know, you, you weren't getting above water. But on the other hand, you could take more time. You could think about things. You weren't rushing to invest. In fact, people wouldn't, wouldn't touch most companies, even if they knew it were good. I mean, I led a deal in a company called CyberArk in April 2002. In the height of the, uh, of the, of the, of the huge tech um, you know, meltdown, we raised a $12 million pre, and you know, we invested uh, $6 million. It, th- there weren't a lot of people who wanted to invest. And so that was an example of a company that 12 years later went public. And, you know, we had a major position in it, in part because nobody wanted to, you know, you know, co-invest. And so you need to venture in general. There's always super successful and a lot of failures. When you're in a tough market time, you know, you, you need to really, really double down on what's going to work and explain to you what's going to work because luck's not going to work or Floating was just buying into a company and it floats more and more successfully is not going to work. Um, and so that dramatically, from my perspective, enabled me to understand early stage investing. Uh, by the way, I loved it, Alejandro. I loved it. Um, it's a lot of fun. You meet smart entrepreneurs. But then again, I felt like I want to be a principal and owner of the business. I don't want to just invest. I want to own. And I remember having a dream that I could do it. I haven't coded uh, since, you know, middle school. So I wasn't, you know, uh, an engineer, but I felt like I could do it. So I wanted to take a concentrated bet of my, on myself. So that was uh, there. But it was so interesting to see all these different entrepreneurs, super smart people, very ambitious, different approaches to market, different approaches to technology. And early stage investing is always tough because, you know, it's it's mostly still a, just a dream. Yeah. So then, so then in your case, what caused the um, what was the trigger for you to go from the investment side to the operating side? Because you landed on Wix, and and what a rocket ship, Wix. Well, in hindsight, you know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, where I didn't know anything. I knew Avishai and his brother Nadav, and the third co-founder gig. Avishai was a co-founder of a major tech company called Sphera, that my venture firm backed. And was, was, the company wasn't successful, but I knew Avishai. I knew he was a genius, and I knew he was a very creative thinker. And he was working on something that just I was really, really, uh, really powerful, which is a way to enable people to express themselves online. In fact, Wix was co- called in the beginning Wixpress, because the whole idea was to, okay, how do we enable people to express themselves online? As if they're drawing on a piece of paper, as as if they're, you know, designing something online without the need to code and all that complexity around that. So how do you build that abstraction layer, that editor? And so I was drawn to that, and we had a lot of different approaches. We didn't know, you know, what we ended up doing. But I joined at the early stage. There were ten or twelve people. The product wasn't stable. We certainly didn't have a go-to-market. But we had a tremendous uh, vision. Founders certainly had. And it felt like the right thing to do because at the time there was just very little, very little in the way of enabling small businesses to operate online. It was just so expensive. You go to GoDaddy, you hire a team, you pay them a lot of money. It's many weeks. They're building your website now. You can never change it. 
and now you want to add functionality like marketing or CRM or, or supply chain or booking, everything was just very, was tilted against small business. And so, you know, we strongly felt that that is just a major avenue to us. And there were 50 companies that had site builders at the time, Alejandro. And, um, you know, that was another lesson to me. Most of your competition is not your direct competitors. In fact, they often help you. You know, Squarespace is public and and you had other companies like WordPress, et cetera. But at the time, we weren't first to market. We built a product that was excellent and we focused on making it better and better over time. Both from a product perspective, we focus on better marketing. And now you're in a very different setting. And if you think about it, still most websites of small businesses are less than great. They're much better the last five years because because of Wix and because of because of other companies. But now you can just build into this growing market. And so what I learned from that is these markets would, you know, are just massive. If you get it right, a market like building online but business capabilities for small businesses, for micro entrepreneurs and small businesses, is just just massive. And these things just go on for decades because there's always more and more things that people need. Now, what what about being the co-CEO of, of a startup that was just, you know, literally coming out in the midst of the whole economic, you know, uh, crisis at that point, you know, around 2008. I mean, I'm sure that there were like a lot of those moments where you guys thought there was going to be a no tomorrow, no? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think to me the most, just if you think about the timeline, Lehman, uh, collapsed in September 2008, if you remember. And we had a free offering until then because we we're still testing out the product. And the product only launched in October 2008. But in between, we need to raise money, like $3 million. By today's money, it's a seed round, but then there was a Series B. So Bessemer backed us previously, and Mangrove uh, also, also joined that round. And after Lehman collapsed, Mangrove, Mark Toulouse was um, wanted to. He was a big believer in the company, and he and he doubled down on the company, and so he became uh, the largest shareholder. And I reminded it to him in the IPO. I said, "Mark, you, you know, at the height of the of the mark of the market crash when everybody was uncertain, you still weren't, you didn't waver. You continued to back. By the way, he didn't try and get another dollar and lower the price somehow." You know, for the deal, but it was successful for him and for the entrepreneurs, and so that's why you know I've I've worked with with Mark and Mangrove again, but it just shows you 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 need to have character. A, a lot of fundamentally, it's easy to make money and the markets are going well, but when the markets are tough, like now or you know every two to three years, the market is tough. You need to have character. You need to have leadership because otherwise you're going to listen to everybody. And, you know, a lot of people become greedy or a lot of people are um, just focused on all the wrong stuff. They just flee their companies, et cetera. If people need to have conviction, either as entrepreneurs or investors in the company. Um, and, and people forget it because right now there's a ton of venture firms. But, you know, are they all going to stick around in a year or two if the markets change? You know, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously in weeks, incredible journey. You know, now Wix is a company with over 6,000 employees. So, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, that was out of, out of this world as an experience. But another company very similar to this one that you were involved with, you know, in terms similar in terms of growth, 
uh, and number of employees is Vroom. You know, now it has probably over a thousand employees. But what was that experience and what were some of the learns and what were you doing there as the co-founder and CEO of, of Vroom? So I had a little bit more experience, you know, coming into Vroom and Vroom was essentially a twofold bet. One is uh, around our desire never to see a used car salesman. I hated that experience. Everything about that was wrong. And more and more over, over time of life, I wanted to focus on things where people should have power. Technologically, you can't create the power, but because of the way an industry is built, they don't have power. So every industry calcifies, right? You have some very successful players. They built a product for a different era, for a different need. Decades go by, society changes, technology changes, but things still work the old way. Why? Because that's what people are used to. And so I never understood why I want to buy an expensive vehicle. I have a little bit of information. The car dealer has a lot of information. I'm going in there and they're doing all these tricks and negotiating. They go into the back room, pretending to negotiate, coming back. It's a whole big, you know, Turkish bazaar, but it's not, there's no fun there. Um, and so I never understood. It felt very wasteful and very disrespectful for the customers. Like, why should I get a better price just because I'm grandstanding, right? And B, if you've ever looked at the stack of papers you get from the dealer, they, they try and get you to do all kinds of things that you don't want to do. They try and sell you all kinds of stuff you don't do. Everything about that I didn't like. And, and the other thing is you have a lot of auction data. Auctions are like stock market. There's a massive auction in Mannheim, Philadelphia, just outside of Philadelphia, where all these cars are bought and sold. So why not take advantage of it? Why not have all this information and enable people to buy and sell cars? And why not do it remotely? Because fundamentally, people spend a lot of time researching cars. And so what we did was actually the first thing that we were really successful about is enabling consumers to sell us their cars. So we built a software that allowed us to focus on the ability to give you a cash price for your car, sight unseen. Only a handful of uh, pictures we wanted to do, and there's only a handful of information that mattered to us based on today's auction data. And we started buying cars from consumers. But guess what? When you treat people fairly, you give them a fixed price. There was no ha haggle. You couldn't haggle with them. Now we started buying 100, 200 cars a day from consumers, sight unseen. And yeah, sometimes people would try and trick you, but most of the time people were being really honest. And Alejandro, what I learned from that is if you actually treat people fairly, you give them a fair price for a car, they will actually want to do more business with you because people who sold us a car were also in the market to buy cars from us. So we were able to build that capability to sell people, to buy cars from people and to sell them. But think about it. We were able to build a profitable business by paying customers for their precious assets, treating them fairly. And we still were able to make a profit. Um, and of course, you need to scale it and build operations and build systems. And, you know, and, and that's, that's always very tough. But it's quite a reverse way to do, to do stuff. And the other thing is, in, in America, there's about 50,000 car dealers. Just think about it for a second. Most of them, 49,000 of them, are pretty basic local car dealers. There's, there's a few hundred bigger regional ones and some really bigger ones like CarMax or AutoNation. But I was always surprised like how they're willing to accept the status quo. They know it's going to go away. It makes no sense. Why not put it online? 
uh, why not let people try the car for a week and see if they like it? You know, cars actually, nobody looked at the economics of shipping cars, which is a small fraction of the value of the car. So nobody, nobody really, you know, looked at that kind of stuff. And for me, I was always surprised that the big car dealers, which now have all this strategy online, I was surprised why they didn't have it. Because, you know, 20 years after, at that time, this was 2014, 2015, 20 years after Amazon was created, everybody heard about Amazon. Nobody wanted to be Amazon. And yet a couple of people are coming into the market and everybody, again, thought they were stupid and crazy and, you know, going to lose their money. I mean, literally, car dealers thought we were off our rockers. How would we buy cars sight and see from consumers? Because they were so used to somebody coming in and trying to haggle with them that they forgot to focus on, on building relationships with people. And they also didn't build a big enough inventory because most of them were local. So all these things were surprised me, but I was surprised how the bigger companies, the, the leading car dealers, were growing 5 or 10% a year, but they were a tiny part of the market. Yeah. You know, even today, CarMax is the most successful used car uh, dealer. It's still low single-digit percent of the market. And so look what happened when Carvana and Vroom came in. You know, they, they, they started taking market share. This is a five, six hundred, seven hundred billion a market. And if I was sitting there in one of the top dealers, I'd say, how come we're not growing 100% a year? Like, why, why should we grow 10% a year? But that never, it was, there was never something they thought about because they were successful, they were profitable. And, and even when Carvana and Vroom started, Carvana, I think, started about a year before us and did a fantastic job. Um, nobody, the, the, the insiders, you know, never, you know, never moved. And again, the big issue, Alejandro, is um, the inertia. Oh, I hate the car dealer experience, but I'm still going to go there because I want to touch and feel the car. But I'm going to send you the car for, for a week to your house. Oh, but I don't know how, maybe you'll trick me. You know, so it's always a matter of building trust with people, you know, and how this works. And this is where I always think about a mindset of somebody who's looking at the app from the outside and saying, why are we doing it? And somebody in the inside saying, why should we change? The insiders always want to perfect the host. We can do 10% better. So if you and I went back to 1870 and we were in Madrid and somebody had a horse and carriage and they wanted to go somewhere an hour out of Madrid to the mountains or to a lake or something, and you caught them in 1870 and you said, what would you want your, your horse to do? I want my horse to run 20% faster. I want my horse not to stop for drinking. I want my carriage to be a little bit more comfortable. They wouldn't say, I want a Tesla. I want a train. I want a rocket ship. I want to be able to fly to the beach. Because yeah. It's difficult to imagine these things. So insiders always want to make things 5-10% better. Whereas outsiders will say, why the hell are we doing it this way? Why work this way? Why not work in a completely different way? Now, you still need to be right. It's not enough to ask these questions. But oftentimes, again, systems get calcified because the bureaucracy sets and then there's a way to do stuff and people are accustomed to do it. And then 20, 30, 40 years go by and you look at it and say, why is it working that way? This doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And to me, that's very interesting because the insiders are usually the last people, the last people to figure this out. Early adopter customers will figure it out. Entrepreneurs will figure it out. Venture investors will figure it out because they're all going to be talking to each other and looking at it. And that's where you need to think about how to 
uh, build the systems because the insiders will always kick the can. It'll take another 10, 20 years and just, you know, let's just, let's just drag this out. A what a journey as outsiders, though, because as outsiders, I mean, you guys go in with room and uh, I mean, you you literally the company went public. So, I mean, what a, what an amazing journey. And, and I'm wondering, you know, to, you know, what was the trigger for you to, you know, because that was a rocket ship, you know, for you to say, you know what, it's time for me to go and start my next baby, you know, K-Health. So what triggered that, Alan? There were several things that triggered that, but, you know, not all of them were, were in my control. At the end, I was looking to do also really big, ambitious things around societal changes, stuff that will make a big difference to a lot of people. And I think I never had a career plan. And in retrospect, um, it always looks like a neat way to do a career plan, but it was always around obsession and tenacity around certain things about why they work and how to change them, immense curiosity, and a desire to change things. And I was always interested in how medicine works and how healthcare works because I was always surprised by the way it works. Stephen Brill wrote a really interesting expose around the American healthcare system and around how it's really deeply unfair. And if you live life long enough, you see experiences that you have or your family, your, your aging parents have around health. And you go to the doctor and you look at it and it looks like it's 1962. You, you, you're having a conversation and everything looks like you, you were brought back 50, 70 years ago. And I'm saying this because if you look at medicine and you look at healthcare, in many respects, it hasn't changed since the 1950s. So I was curious about that. This is such an important profession. I revere doctors just like most people do. I certainly do. And I employ many of them, so I've got a lot of um, respect for them. But I was always curious as to wh why things work that way in medicine and healthcare and, and who set it up and, you know, the way it works. And this is where I can give you a little bit of, of, of my view of things. But this is, this is something quite foundational, not only to K, but also to medicine, the business of medicine. It's called healthcare and to societies because this could have big impact. So, so for the people that are listening to really get it, what is the business model of K-Health? Well, K does three things. It gives you information that is based on a real data set of people and allows K to engage with you, our machine, our AI to engage with you and have a conversation with you around your health and acute issues and chronic issues um, for free. And so people can use us, but there's not some kind of Dr. Google, let me guess what you have, your stomach hurts, or maybe it's pregnancy, maybe it's food poisoning, maybe it's something else horrible. You know, how do you have an intelligent conversation? How do you mimic the best doctor in the world? And we built a system where it compares you to what we call people like, people like me, a dynamic cluster of people. That's one. But that gives people a lot of information around their health. Oh, I've got this weird ache or pain or I'm concerned about COVID or something else. But now I can go and answer a series of questions that are highly personalized to understand what I have. The second thing we do is we enable people not only to understand if their headache is sinusitis or migraine or you know, COVID or Lyme disease or something, but they can also press a, a button and 24-7 talk to a doctor and resolve the problem. 
Maybe they don't need to do anything. Maybe they need a prescription. Maybe they need to be sent to do a lab or a test. Maybe they need to go to the ER. Usually not, but it gives people the ability to do it. So first of all, just from the most basic level, your doctor's not available 24-7, and certainly your doctor's not available right now. Try it. I promise you. You need to book an appointment. It's often days. So that's a little bit weird because nobody has the worst headache in the world or weird pain or real concern, and it's 10 p.m., and they say, well, let me just go to sleep. I'll deal with it tomorrow morning. I'm really tired. No, you're not, you're not going to sleep, right? Um, so it's a little bit weird that we enabled uh, medical clinics to work nine to five and to, for you to book appointments takes weeks and days, weeks uh, to, to see a doctor. Why not, why not right now? If you can trade cryptocurrency 24-7, I, I'm going to say it's more important you take care of your health 24-7. Your body doesn't shut down after five minutes. And who wants to go to the ER and wait hours? And, you know, how's that going to work? You know, the, the other thing is um, medicine is based on a lot of data. The Johns Hopkins system in America, which in turn is based on uh, a lot of European breakthroughs, especially German breakthroughs around moving away from bloodletting to labs, right? <laughs> bloodletting is the quickest way to kill people. But in the 1870s, 1890s, the Johns Hopkins School created this whole system of Western medicine, which was groundbreaking um, in so many in so many uh, levels, and started creating evidence-based medicine. And you know, it became a very practical profession, and it became a profession that wanted to learn from 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 real data. And there was a lot of building and stuff that added, and then it started calcifying as well. And we always confuse, you know, you saw. The pig heart into a human heart. You saw, um, you saw Moderna vaccines. You're seeing biomedical devices. You're seeing continued glucose monitor devices. All these things are amazing. You're seeing immunotherapy and oncology, energy blockers in oncology, especially in oncology, so many changes. But that is, that is not day-to-day -day medicine. People confuse between the two. And day-to-day -day medicine hasn't changed from the 50s. I'm talking about acute care. I've got a problem, something's bothering me. I'm talking about chronic care, managing diabetes and hypertension and thyroid and asthma and heart conditions. I'm talking about preventative stuff. This is where the care delivery itself, what 99.5% of what people need right now hasn't changed from the 50s. And you guys, you guys obviously have raised quite a bit of money to really push this because as you say, as an outsider, you gotta think about you know, doing things differently. And for that, especially in healthcare, you know, it requires some capital. So how much money have you guys raised today for this alone? I, I never remember the exact numbers because we had a lot of rounds, but about $270 million to Kate okay. and uh, over $100 million to Hydrogen, which is a joint venture between Anthem and Blackstone and Kate to leverage the KK capabilities into um, the employer market. Bear in mind, again, people need to... Uh, very simply, we think we can give you access, we can be your doctor, we can give you information, and we can allow you to manage your health most of the time online. Sometimes you need to go in. And that's often where it's very expensive and very scary and very confusing, even if you have an insurance. And that's where America is quite specific. And Anthem and Blackstone understood this, and we built this capability that leverages what we do with K, which allows you to get information and get doctors in order to also get other things. People need labs, they need tests, they need surgeries, 
they need insurance. So how do you build all those components, you know, together? So we're in the process of building, you know, all these different kinds of capabilities and partnering the right people. I mean, you know, $400 million is a lot of money, but there is $3.5 trillion in the American healthcare system right now. And you will see it will grow above inflation. Inflation's giving it a run for the money right now. Yeah. But you'll see it will grow above because medication's getting more expensive and there's new medications. People are getting older in America in general. So the, there's more, more issues as you get older. And people have more chronic conditions. So you're fighting demographics that are making it more expensive. But here's the thing, Alejandro, that people don't fully realize. As much as medicine is based on a scientific underpinning, it does not use data every day to get better. If somebody goes to a doctor, complains about a headache, and gets diagnosed with, say, sinusitis, and has some kind of complication, and it's not sinusitis, and that person goes to the ER, the doctor who diagnosed and treated them and gave them a prescription and everything else, does not learn from that. There's no learning here from the data. The doctor is none the wiser. If that identical patient came back the next day, the doctor would make the same mistake again. Why? Because the doctor doesn't get an update about it. It takes 10, 20 years. And even that, I'm not even sure it always gets. Look how many times in the, you live in Connecticut, how many times uh, Lyme disease gets uh, misdiagnosed in America? Why? All the time. All the time. You know, and so I'm, I'm just pointing out that there is a gap between people's perception of doctors as heroic and super experienced, which they are, versus their ability to have information in the fingertips. So building a system that can learn. So I said to you about K, about an information system, KMD about our services and the ability to resolve your problem right now 24-7 or refer you if we need to. Um, the ability to provide you the connection to offline, which is stuff we're building. And then the ability to learn from the data and to build something that's slightly more personalized for Alejandro or anybody else. So let me ask you this. If I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, just to finish it off, you know, with this last question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. And I put you, you know, back in time where you were, you know, let's say involved in your first rodeo, you know, let's say with Wix, you know, and, and you had the opportunity of giving yourself one piece of advice before, you know, embarking on that, on that business. What would that, you know, piece of advice that you would give, you know, your, to your younger self and why, given the wealth of knowledge that you have now after everything that you've gone through, what would that be? It's all around, it's all about the people, truly so. And it's all about a handful of people that will be there when the shit hits the fan, whether it's investors or partners or your key employees. It doesn't matter if they're super senior or not. Those are the people that are going to matter. You know, that's one thing I would do. And it, one thing I would say. And the other thing is you need to trust your instincts. There's no playbook for everything. You can't call up Bill Gates and say, hey, Bill, what would, I, what would you do? It doesn't work that way. Everybody needs to figure out their own industry. And, I, you know, the, the other thing I'd say, if you look at the stuff on tackling, these are massive industries enabling, you know, hundreds of millions of small businesses to operate efficiently online, enable um, you know, people to, to buy these massive expensive assets called cars, enabling people to deal with their healthcare and medicine. If these things work out, they will be way bigger than what my Excel uh, 
plan for two years from now will be. It'll be way bigger. And it'll be decades. I think these things take a long time. These yeah. are hard things to do because you need to get the services right, the software right, the data right, the marketing right, you know, the, the engagement with healthcare. But in order to do all these things, if it works out, these things will be massive. And that's, you're starting to see this in certain companies. But I think this is where, you know, it's never, Uber never replaced just taxes, right? That's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah. So you need to find people that will have the right way to look at it and the, and the right kind of horizon to, 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 to enable that. And, you know, you, you know, luck plays an important part of it. You need to be lucky. There's market timing, <laughs> you know, et cetera. The one thing I'd say that people overstate is competition. Unless somebody comes with a crackerjack product that works amazingly well and sucks out all the oxygen in the room, Google into search, for example, then you really need to worry about Google. And most of the time, you need to worry about market inertia. People are not going to trust you. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to hear about you. If they're going to hear about you, they're not going to try it. You know, that is the thing that you need to break through, even with a great product. Absolutely. You know, so hopefully that gives you a sense of, of the things. I'm that was fantastic. So, so for the people that are listening along, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn, Twitter. I don't post a lot, but, you know, people send me a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, uh, at Alon Block and, 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 and my LinkedIn, um, you know, and, you know, I, I, do, I do look at a lot of stuff. I don't always respond, don't always get to everything. But, you know, I, I do respond to a lot of cold stuff that people send me. So, um, you know, and it's, if people take, take the time and, and think of something to say and, and why it's relevant for me, I, I will respond, you know. I've hired a lot of people that way and I've met a lot of people that way. So, you know, I like the serendipity. Amazing. I love that. Well, Alon, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me and uh, thanks for your time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.